You're listening to a podcast on Catholic Saints. This podcast is produced by the Augustan Institute, an apostolate helping Catholics understand, live, and share their faith. Welcome to the show. My name is Dr. Elizabeth Klein. I'm a professor of theology here at the Augustan Institute. And here with me is my colleague, Dr. John Seahorn. Uh, and we're very pleased to be filming a series on St. Augustine's Confessions. So the Confessions is a really wonderful, rich text, but it's sometimes hard to read. So we're hoping that this conversation can uh, encourage you to read it, uh, help accompany you if you are reading it. So the first session we thought we would just open with a little bit about St. Augustine, who he is, when he lived, uh, and why he wrote the Confessions. Uh, so Dr. Seahorn, do you want to start off with telling us a little bit about the basic stats of St. Augustine? Sure. Yeah. Um, how about just his his vitals, right? Um, so Augustine is born in November of uh, 354, unless I'm mistaken. I got that yeah, one right. You're right. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, in North Africa. Um, and sometimes that even that itself is interesting uh, to people. Um, North, uh, North Africa, of course, at the time was part of the Roman Empire. Um, if, if you haven't looked at a map recently, it might not be a bad idea to get one out and actually look at how close um, the, the African coast, the northern African coast, uh, is to Italy. I think a lot of times people um, sort of think of, of Italy and North Africa as, as uh, more separate than they were, especially during Augustine's time. Uh, so born in 354, died in 430. Nothing important happened during those years, right, Dr. Klein? It was really, it was really easy going. Uh, yeah, so it's just mentioning his dates and his location helps to bring up a topic we kind of wanted to talk a little bit about in this first session, which is the Confessions has kind of an equal dose of familiarity and strangeness when you read it. There are some things about Augustine's story that just feel so relatable, almost modern, and then there are other parts of it that seem you know, totally strange uh, and really foreign. And that's because in some ways his culture was a lot like ours. And in other ways, it's very different. So in the ways that it was different, as Dr. Sierra mentioned, you know, he was born in the Roman Empire in North Africa, maybe not a cultural location a lot of us are familiar with, both the Roman part and the North African part. Uh, and there are elements of the story that that you'll sense that, you know, references to religious groups that no longer exist or references to cultural practices that, that we no longer do or recognize. Uh, but then on the other hand, there's this kind of cultural force that's quite similar. Uh, you know, the Roman Empire in Augustine's time was kind of becoming more Christianized. It had a groundswell, you might say. And yet a lot of the elites were not Christian. And Christianity mm -hmm. at Augustine's time was still seen as kind of, I don't know, the religion for the pathetic, pious folk who didn't really know any better. And, and Augustine's mother, he kind of puts in that category for a long time. And so we might say that August, in Augustine's age is sort of coming out of paganism into Christianity. Uh, Augustine complained a lot about this as a bishop, that people really weren't fully Christian. Uh, and so we're kind of in some ways on the other end of that equation, uh, where we kind of have one foot in the Christian past and one foot in a sort of maybe what we call pagan or secular future. And so the, that overlap, I think there's a lot of similarities. Yeah, I think that's right. And and um, sort of the the flip side, flip side of what you just uh, presented, I think, is that um, you know, on the one hand, especially in the West, uh, many of the the cultural elites still sort of look down uh, on Christianity as uh, something that was 
you know, really for unenlightened people. Uh, on the other hand, uh, this is, you know, if Augustine's born in, in the 350s, so we're talking about only 40 years after uh, Constantine had made it legal to be a Christian uh, in the Roman Empire. And in um, the, the first years of the fourth century, the 300s, uh, Christians had undergone uh, the greatest persecution um, uh, ever um, uh, ever brought against Christians in uh, the Roman Empire. So there was there was kind of a feeling in some ways of of whiplash mm -hmm. and then followed by a long period of of um, acclimation to this new reality of Christianity being not so dangerous. Um, so on the one hand, um, you know, you still have this kind of sense that, well, maybe that's not, you know, what, what the most influential people are into uh, in, in the West. On the other hand, you have Christians grappling with, um, what does it mean to commit yourself to Christ in a context where that, at least within the Roman, Roman Empire, mm -hmm. no longer means um, likely martyrdom? Mm -hmm. And that, that mix of like, the negotiation of Christianity and Roman culture. I mean, that's all, all every, through every age, there's always in the world and not of the world. There's that kind of mm -hmm. tension of how do I live in the culture that I'm in, but also live for Christ. But I think in Augustine's age, as in our own, it's one that's particularly pronounced. And so mm -hmm. you'll see that throughout the story where, you know, in Augustine's early years, he's really chasing after the best that the Roman empire has to offer. Uh, and then after his conversion, kind of having a reorientation to that. Uh, and, you know, it's not that he forsakes the learning and skills he had prior. He puts those to the service of the church. And so that that negotiation, I think, is felt in the confessions and does make it a kind of familiar dynamic to something that we're experiencing now. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's we were talking a little bit about this before. There's a way in which I think maybe the confessions was more is more popular now even than it was in the Middle Ages. Of course, they read it in the Middle Ages and they liked it. Uh, but there is something that about the confessions that just has really held the attention of moderns and has, has really been a popular book for 1500 years. It's been, you know, one of these mm -hmm. standard books that people have read, which is, which is really amazing. I don't know how many other works kind of have that longevity. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, a theme that maybe we'll talk about more as we kind of work through, um, through the text a little bit together, uh, but that maybe is worth bringing up now, uh, is that, uh, in, in a, in a really pronounced way, Augustine is attuned to, the instability, not just of his own context, but of existence in this world as such, right? Um, we're born, we grow up, we live, we die. Uh, nothing is certain. Uh, things change on us all the time. Uh, it feels like the rug can be pulled out from under us at a, at a moment's notice. And, and Augustine was acutely aware of this. I do think that that was um, a kind of special concern uh, in in his time and place, uh, especially in the Roman Empire. If you know a little bit about Roman history, you might know that in the year 410, uh, the city of Rome was sacked by uh, a barbarian army. And this was actually the first time that that had happened in just about 800 years. So you can imagine the sort of sense of, of well, security and mm -hmm. stability that um, Romans had experienced for a very long time, at least with respect to the mother city of the empire, uh, the city of Rome, eternal Rome, as it was as it was often called. Um, and, you know, Augustine uh, lived during during this time, of course, uh, he was very much alive in 410, in fact, wrote um, uh, a much longer work of the confessions, the city of God, um, sort of initially in response to mm -hmm. to this terrible event of the sack of the city of Rome. But even the confessions is written not so long before that event. And I think a lot of political, social, cultural observers at the time 
uh, could see uh, th that um, that this sense of again stability, uh, security, certainty was really was really slipping away, and um, and I think that's something that modern people can very much relate to. Mm -hmm. um, the we live in a time that um, I think it would be really hard to deny that um, that the the rate of change uh, mm -hmm. socially, politically, culturally, in all these different ways is. Um, if not unprecedented, it's at least highly unusual, and so um, and so this is something I think that that um, that modern people can really connect to in the confessions. This search for an anchor, mm -hmm. uh, something to hold on to, not in the sense of kind of wish fulfillment, but something that that is real, that is solid, and on which um, we can base our sense of ourselves, our sense of our place in the world, our sense of purpose. So that's actually a perfect kind of segue to what I hope to talk about next, which what, given some of these hints about Augustine's context and his culture and the life that he lived, why did he write the Confessions? So the Confessions is written about 10 years after the events that it describes. Uh, and it it's, you know, kind of hailed as the first spiritual autobiography of all time. We'll talk a little bit more about what that means in the next episode, but it really is in a class on its own. There's never been a book written ever again that's really like the confessions and certainly never before mm -hmm. before he wrote it so uh why do you think or you know what are some reasons people think that the confessions was written well as you know dr klein that's still a matter of scholarly debate um so maybe to kind of lead up to it it would be helpful at least i i like to think very linearly sometimes and get a nice chronology in mind so we mentioned augustine's birth in 354, um, much of what we'll learn about Augustine's life in the Confessions tells the story um, all the way from his childhood up until um, his conversion uh, to the Catholic faith, um, which really happens at his baptism uh, on Easter in the year 387. So he was 32, right? Hadn't had his birthday yet. Um, and of course, leading up to that is a famous scene we'll discuss in due course uh, when he makes that decision uh, to pursue baptism and full initiation into the Catholic Church. Um, and, and as Dr. Klein mentioned, that's really where the narrative, it, it, it goes a little bit beyond his baptism, but not much, not much at all. Um, and so um, what, what's happened between uh, what, where the confession sort of leaves off and when Augustine sits down uh, to write them, well, actually quite a lot. Um, after uh, becoming a Catholic in 387, uh, Augustine is uh, ordained to the priesthood against his will, which mm -hmm. we may or may not have a chance to talk about. I think in 391, is that right? I, that sounds right. Okay, so Dr. Klein doesn't care about the dates as much as I do. I'm very... <laughs> punctiliar about this sort of a thing. So um, 391 becomes a presbyter, a priest. Um, and then a few years later in 395, uh, he becomes a bishop. And um, we think the confessions may have been written um, around 397, maybe a little bit later, but but uh, quite probably around 397. So just a couple years after having become a bishop. Um, and, and by the way, if you do have a chance, which I hope you all uh, do to, to read the confessions for yourself, uh, sort of keep that in mind. What, what would this be like uh, for your bishop or some other famous bishop in the church to come out with a, a work like this? Yeah, so if we think some people then postulate that the cause of the writing of confessions is a kind of defense. Uh, you know, he's become a bishop. He was sort of notorious for having been a Manichaean, uh, which is a kind of another religious sect that has some kind of Christian flavor to it. And we'll talk about Manichaeanism in a later episode. So in some people think maybe part of the reason was kind of 
showing his staff that he really did have an authentic conversion, that he really is Catholic, uh, and that he really is prepared to be a mm -hmm. Catholic leader. Mm -hmm. And if you and if you think about it in that context, uh, you know, how would someone today, how would a bishop elect today respond to that kind of critique? You know, you're not fully converted or you have a shady past. Would it look like the confessions? Uh, so probably not. <laughs> the confessions is, uh, as we said, a, a very unique work, uh, but also a very vulnerable and open work that includes mm. a lot of, I don't know what we might think of as like too much information, especially uh, from a bishop. Uh, and so even even that context doesn't seem to totally exhaust the cause of his writing. Uh, and you know, later in Augustine's life, um, close to his death when he was in his 70s, he went back through all of his works uh, and he like corrected mistakes that he'd made or kind of made comments. Uh, and when he got to the confessions, he kind of gives us a hint, at least, of the reason that he wrote it. Uh, and he says that um, the works of his confessions are to praise God in his good and bad ways and to move the hearts and affections of men, the minds, sorry, the minds and the hearts of men toward God. Uh, he says it has that effect on me when I was writing it and it still has that effect on me now, uh, which is really, really beautiful. I just reflection. opened to that, oh, that passage. There you yeah. go. He's no. got it right there. Well, but you apparently had it right at your fingertips. Just to clarify, um, right, to, to praise the just and good God in Augustine's good and bad actions, yes. not, not in God's. Yes. Gods are all yes. good. Gods, Gods are, are all good. good. All right. good. All just. Yeah, and, and I think that that's, um, you know, what, whatever it was that, um, I th you know, I think we can sort of synthesize these by recognizing that, that surely there were things that prompted Augustine that gave him this idea. It might be a good idea to sit down and write this. Um, and yet it really says a lot about Augustine that, um, you know, let's say it's true that he's, he's sitting down and, and in a way giving, well, what is it? Is it a defense of himself? What, what is it exactly? Um, it is, at least in some sense, an account of himself. And as you, as you mentioned, a really vulnerable one. Uh, in fact, a, a kind of shockingly vulnerable one, at times really challenging one. Um, and so I find it really fascinating, though, that when Augustine sits down to give this account of himself uh, publicly, um, well, there are a lot of fascinating things about it. But the fact that he would think that the best way to do this is uh, to write something in praise of God, something that is meant to incite his own mind and heart uh, to love God more, to be in awe of God, uh, to praise God for uh, his mercy, and to invite others to do the same. Um, and, and in some ways, I think that um, that's, um, that's part of the enduring value of mm -hmm. The confessions, right? Because uh, on the one hand, as we mentioned, there's this kind of existential dynamic to the text, right? Who am I? What does my life mean? You know, how do I find my way forward? Um, is there redemption for my mistakes? All those, all those, uh, those huge questions that that really every serious, uh, serious-minded person has to grapple with. Um, but Augustine doesn't just pose the questions as if, well, it's just enough to start the conversation. He actually thinks that there are answers, mm -hmm. and he thinks that the answer is um, that there is no account of ourselves apart from uh, seeking praise of God, right, uh, on our own, but also in community. And so um, instead of giving a kind of legal defense of himself, let me tell you why I'm so great mm -hmm. or why I'm not so bad or, you know, whatever it is, um, instead he invites people to join him in contemplating uh, his own life and and how he's seen God at work in his life. And so in a way, if if part of what's at work here is some kind of defense of himself, really what he wants to offer is a defense of God, 
or maybe that's speaking too defensively, right? He wants to say that anything that's praiseworthy in him, anything that's made him worthy of the office of bishop is really due to God's mercy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that he's not going to shy away from telling anything about his past to that end. Uh, and so Augustine would have been disappointed if you thought you're reading the confession just to find out about Augustine. He, he would think that you're reading the confession to find out about God. Uh, that's really his goal. And, and so this touches on something else I wanted to mention in this first episode, which is that the title of the work, Confession, uh, you know, if you've taken an undergraduate class in the Confessions, you've probably ha- had the professor explain that the word confession, which to our mind, we think of sacramental confession to a priest. Uh, of course, confession does mean confession of sins, but for Augustine, really, it's primarily about confession of praise. Uh, and so that's why he says in the revisions in his 70s that this work was about the, pr- the praise of God. And so the recounting of his sins it isn't supposed to be, uh, I don't know, we're not supposed to satisfy our curiosity about Augustine in, in the telling of his sins. The only reason he tells us about his sins is because he wants to highlight <clears throat> the great mercy of God and praise God who saved him from those sins. And so a, a sometimes frustrating part about the Confessions for Moderns is that he actually doesn't tell us a lot of things that we might want to know about his past sins. The famous example is that he doesn't tell us the name of his mistress uh, who bore his son, Adeodatus. Uh, and people, sometimes when they read the Confessions, they think, oh, what a jerk. He was so cold-hearted. He doesn't even mention her. Uh, but it's kind of, for one thing, bucks against that that impulse in us to just be kind of curious about the evil deeds of others, which Augustine you know, rejects explicitly in the Confessions, uh, and also tells us that Augustine really isn't thinking of this work as being about himself and the names of the people in his life and his deeds, but he's telling the narrative in such a way so that God will be praised and God will be known. You agree? I agree. (laughs) So something else we thought we would cover in this episode is just to give you the kind of bird's eye view of of the structure of the confessions Mm -hmm. uh, and and sort of what's what's being talked about. Um, So this was your idea. Oh, okay. Um, (laughs) So the Confessions is divided into 13 books. Um, People often refer to them as chapters. That's that's not actually correct. The the entire work is divided into books, which are further divided into chapters uh, and and sections. Um, So uh, there's actually a lot to say about the structure of the the 13 books. And so we won't get into into the weeds uh, too much here, uh, except to say that uh, books one through nine uh, are... Uh, sort of give Augustine's history. Now, even that is really interesting. He, um, as as we'll see, he doesn't actually begin the work um, uh, with his with his infancy. Um, there's there's something that leads to him talking about his his infancy, which is already a clue that this is not maybe what we usually expect when we think of an autobiography. But the following books largely um, follow Augustine's life chronologically from um, from his infancy up until his conversion uh, at the age of. Uh, 32. Um, interestingly, book nine does not end uh, with uh, with his baptism, although it does mention his baptism. It actually ends with the death of his mother and uh, his mother, St. Monica, and uh, sort of Augustine's process of, of dealing with that death. Okay, now we come to a, a sort of turning point in, in the work, and that's, that's book 10. So um, in, in book 10, actually, Augustine says he's no longer talking about uh, what he was, but what he is. And, um, and so instead of sort of, um, you know, talking about himself as a finished product, you know, emerging from the baptismal font um, as, uh, as a fully formed saint, 
Um, Augustine talks about what are his ongoing struggles. He doesn't narrate any more of his life. Um, instead, sort of talks about what's my relationship with God like now? Where do I still um, have difficulties? Um, but also, you know, where, where have I seen God's grace triumphant in me? Um, and then the most puzzling turn of all to, um, to most readers of the confessions on their first time or even on their 21st time uh, is books 11, 12, and 13, where Augustine um, stops talking about his own life and starts talking about sacred scripture uh, and uh, sort of engages in a very deep discussion uh, of the first chapter of, of Genesis. Uh, and really, he spends books 11 and 12 just on the first two verses mm -hmm. of Genesis chapter 1, if you can believe that. He picks up the pace quite a bit in book 13 <laughs> and ends the confessions um, with this sort of amazing uh, symphonic reading of uh, the whole of Genesis 1, of uh, God's work of, of creation. But also, uh, he reads it to see what he can learn about God's work of recreation, uh, his redemption of, of fallen humanity. Yeah, no, thank you. That was wonderful. Thank you. Um, and I think that that will uh, bring us really nicely into what we'll talk about uh, next time, because just as Dr. Zion has narrated, it's very clear immediately that what's called a work of autobiography is maybe not best called that, or what should we call it? Mm -hmm. If it was autobiography, it would end at book nine, or certainly by book 10. Uh, so why do we have these these three longer books? So I, uh, that's all we have for our intro. Well, um, could, oh, can I add one thing? I, I think it might be helpful um, to do a little show and tell with oh, the right. copies yeah, of yeah. the confessions mm -hmm. that we have with us. There are many, many, many translations of uh, the confessions, and quite of them are quite a few of them are good. Mm -hmm. I can't say I think all of them are great, but but quite a few of them are very good. So um, Dr. Klein and I have two different translations here with us that we thought we'd show you. It can be helpful to see uh, um, the covers of these works, um, although we're not suggesting these are the only worthwhile mm -hmm. translations. So um, probably the one I think you and I agree has become our favorite uh, is, is this one, uh, which is translated by John K. Ryan. Um, and is available from Image Books. Um, the other one, also um, a, a, very, a really very popular translation in the past few decades, uh, was by Sister Maria Bolding. Um, and it was first published by New City Press. So here's the cover of, uh, of that, the, those first editions of her translation, The Confessions. But it's also been republished by Ignatius Press, and that's what the cover looks like there. But it's the same translation. Yeah, the one, I, this version um, includes very helpful notes and a few kind of essays for beginner, uh, beginning readers of The Confessions. So I do like uh, this version, but the Ryan, I would agree, is my favorite translation. Thanks for reminding me to, to do that. So uh, that's the that's the editions for you following at home. Those will be the translations that we're reading from, either Dr. Seahorn reading from Ryan or I'll be reading from Bolding. So that's all we have for our first episode. That's all we have. That's all we have. Uh, and next time, as I uh, mentioned, we're going to be talking about what it means to call the Confessions autobiography. So I hope you mm. join us uh, for the next episode. You can watch these interviews in video format by visiting form.org. Formed is an online Catholic streaming service created by the Augustine Institute and Ignatius Press with award-winning studies and parish programs, inspiring audio content, movies, ebooks, and family-friendly kids programming. To support the mission of the Augustine Institute, please visit missioncircle.org.